If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you receive the handout on your way in here. You can find the passage printed there for you. There's also a lot of other helpful information on the other side of that passage, uh, that, that handout. But the passage is printed there for you so you can follow along with us. Now today we're going to begin a new uh, Bible study series that we're calling Unstuck. And the, the focus of this study that we're going to be going through, and it's going to take us through the summer, is to look at challenges in our life that cause us to feel stuck. And that's what challenges do so often, right? We've run into a challenge, we run into circumstance, we run into different issues, and it can, it can immobilize us. We can feel stuck. In the Bible, King David talked about the challenges that he faced, and he described it as being uh, stuck in a slimy pit. That's how he described it, as being his feet stuck in mud and mire. That's a vivid picture that we can relate to. That when we face certain challenges in life, certain uh, issues, certain crises, it can cause us to feel stuck, uncertain of which way to go or how to even move forward. And so this summer, what we want to do is talk about how uh, these challenges that we run into, we all face. But let's look at these challenges differently. Let's look at these challenges and address them as though what would it look like for us to face the challenges that we run into with Christ? And that statement, with Christ, is very intentionally stated. Because we all face challenges, the question is, are we doing it alone or are we doing it with Christ? And what we want to do is look at it with Christ, because with Christ we have hope. With Christ we can move forward, because with Christ we have a firm rock that we can stand upon. We have clear direction, so we know how to step forward, even in the midst of the challenges and the circumstances around us. It's so, it's so incredibly important. And it's important that we get that because so often in the Christian life, we can approach things with some misunderstandings, the Christian life and challenges and conflicts. And so what I want to do is I want to just highlight a couple of the different approaches that we can have to the Christian life when it comes to the challenges, crises, conflicts that we face. The first one is this, that we can approach the Christian life as this thought that it's victory without challenges. That is, come to Christ and then everything is going to go smoothly after that, right? No, it's not how it works, does it? But I do think that sometimes we think, well, God, if I trust you, I shouldn't have difficulty anymore. If I'm really truly following you, why am I having hardship? And so it's a difficult thing for us to come to grips with, but that's not the reality. The reality is we still will face challenges. The second approach is this. We say we, we, want, uh, we think that the other approach is challenges without victory, that is, approaching the Christian life is, well, it's just this endless, endless life of conflict, crisis, endless challenge, endless overwhelming circumstances. And that, that orientation says the best that we can do is just sort of hold on until the end. That is, you know, just hang on to the cliff. You hold on long enough. Eventually, God's going to come back or he's going to take you home. And then there's victory. Well, that's not the reality Either. There's another approach that I think is more faithful to Scripture, and that's this, that we can have victory in the midst of challenges. Victory in the midst of challenges. And I think this is more faithful to Scripture because it acknowledges both realities. One, there are challenges that you will face. We live in a broken world. Have you noticed? Yeah, we live in a broken, badly broken world. Uh, but at the same time, we have a God who's more powerful 
than the, the broken and the challenges that we face. He's, he stands above it all. So we have both of those realities. And so we can have hope if we walk with Christ. We can have direction if we look to him in the midst of our challenges. We can have victory even in those circumstances because we know which way to go as we trust him, as we follow him. And this is an important thing for us to get. This past week, I had the opportunity of sharing my testimony at our Celebrate Recovery ministry. Our Celebrate Recovery ministry is a ministry, a support ministry really focused on helping people who are dealing with addiction or um, destructive habits and patterns in their life. And it's a support ministry for that. And as I shared my testimony, let me tell you this. I felt right at home in that group. I felt so at home because here's the reality. I am not made of something different than anyone else in that place. I'm not because I'm a pastor on some higher spiritual plane. The reality is I need God desperately in my life. And the only hope that I have in, in, in my life is to trust him and to put my hope in him and to walk with him so that I can have freedom, so that I can have hope, so that I can have joy. Apart from him, I can't on my own. And that's the beautiful thing about the Celebrate Recovery Ministry. All those folks who are in there recognize something that not everyone here in this room recognizes yet. That if we try to do things on our own power, we're only going to remain stuck. But when we stop and admit, I'm powerless. God, I need to look to you because you are powerful. Then we can become unstuck. We can move forward with Christ, his power at work in us. We desperately need him. And that's what this series is all about. It's stepping forward with Christ. Not my power, God, because my power, I stay stuck. And I keep coming back to the same things. And I don't know which way to go. But God, in your power, I can have hope. In your power, I can step forward. And so what we're going to do this summer is we're going to look at a series of passages that really are moments where Jesus comes alongside of someone who's dealing with a very real challenge. And he walks with them. That's what we're going to look at. And if you're a Bible student here, it might be helpful for you to follow along over the course of the summer and to know this, that we're going to be looking at the challenges in chronological order. Um, they may be coming from different gospel accounts, and it might be helpful for you to notice, oh, I didn't know this came before that, and this came, before, and came after that. And so we'll go through in kind of a, a sweep of Jesus' earthly ministry and how he comes alongside people who are in crisis, people who are facing challenges, and how he brings hope. And how he can help us move forward even in the midst of the overwhelming circumstances and the great challenges of our life. So that's what we're going to be looking at each week when we come together um, as we head through this summer. Now, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to not look at a passage where Jesus comes alongside of somebody and walks with them in their challenge. We're going to look at a passage where Jesus himself is facing the challenge. We're going to come to a passage where Jesus is faced with the challenge of temptation. And I think it's very helpful for us to look at because we all face temptation, but we can find great hope looking at Jesus as he addressed temptation because he addressed it as a man and he also addressed it um, victoriously. And so there's great hope for us, so much for us to learn through his model and through his method as he addresses the temptation in his life. 
And so what I want to do is invite you to look at that passage, and then um, we're going we're gonna to stand together. So I'd like to invite you to please stand. I'm going to read the entire passage, and then we'll kind of come back and look at it verse by verse, um, because there's so much here in this famous story of the temptation of Jesus. Found in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 13. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Perhaps one of the most um, obvious statements in the Bible, but there it is for us, and it is helpful. Verse 3, it says this, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor that has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. And now let's just take a look at this uh, verse by verse. Beginning of verse 1, it says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so it begins by saying that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. The question is, what does that mean, full of the Holy Spirit? Well, in order to understand it, you need to understand what happened just before this. Just before this, Jesus was at the Jordan and he was baptized. And it was an amazing experience. I mean, the whole Trinity shows up. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all together at once. So it's a really remarkable um, scene. But not just uh, about, it, what's remarkable is not just what, who shows up, but what's said about Jesus as he shows up that's very important for us to see. So in fact, when Jesus shows up to be baptized, John the baptizer is there. And when he sees Jesus, this is what he declares. This is what he says. Let me read it for you. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, it's not just who shows up, but what is said about who shows up. And John makes this incredible declaration about Jesus. In fact, he identifies what Jesus' mission is his job, why he came. He lays it out for us. And if you didn't grow up in church, you may be wondering, well, why is it that John calls Jesus a lamb? What's that all about? But if if you're coming from a Jewish culture, that would make complete sense to you because they would understand that a lamb is used for sacrifice. And so what John is saying is that Jesus came to be a sacrifice. His mission was to sacrifice himself for us. And to sacrifice himself, that is, he needed to be spotless. If you know the sacrificial system, you know they would choose a lamb that was spotless. Therefore, Jesus was spotless. That means he he needed to be sinless. And so Jesus was sinless. He was a spotless lamb. 
He was a sacrificial lamb. He sacrificed himself. And the, and the other part of it is it was substitutionary. That is, he sacrificed himself in our place. So when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross and he died that death, it wasn't for his sins that he was dying. He died that death for our sins. It says in this passage, he did it to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus' mission was to come live a sinless life, to offer himself in our place, to be a substitutionary sacrifice so that anyone who comes to him in faith, places faith in Jesus Christ, can have their sins forgiven. That is, they look to Jesus in faith and say, Jesus, the death that you died was my death. You died in my place so that I could have forgiveness and I could have life. That's why Jesus came. This is what John declares. And it's very important that we get that context in that setting. So he says he's full of the Holy Spirit, but then he says that he left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Jesus has gone from this spiritual high point, baptism at the Jordan, to the wilderness, which is kind of a bummer, let down, right, after that. He's going from a, a, a point where he's hearing God's voice speak to him to now being in a desert where there's buzzards squawk, squawking over him, right? He's gone from a place of, of, of great spiritual fulfillment to being starving. And let me tell you this, both come from God. Both come from God. The high point and the low point. It says in this passage, he's led by the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit to be baptized. He's led by the Spirit to the desert. And it's important that we get this because God is a great God. And he's God not just to the good stuff, but he's also God to the stuff we don't like and we want to avoid. He's God over all. And that's important for us to see. Now, it says that he was led into the wilderness and this is important other note for us to make is that this is before Jesus had disciples, by the way. Um, this was very early on in his ministry. This is the beginning of his ministry. He was around 30 years old. He did not have disciples. He did not have followers. So when he was sent out into the wilderness, he was utterly alone. Some of you understand that feeling of alone. So he's completely alone, and he's really truly sent out into the wilderness. And the wilderness really truly is wilderness. It is desert. In fact, many of you know that my wife Lisa and I had the opportunity to go to Israel in January. And when we were there, I took a picture of the Judean wilderness. And so let me show you the picture that we took while we were there. So as you can see, behind us is that's the Judean wilderness. There is nothing. It's just hills and hills of rocks and really nothing else. There's another picture that shows kind of a larger scene. This is where Jesus was when he was led out into the wilderness. And so it really was a, a, a difficult um, place to be. Now, go to the next verse. It says this, where here in the desert, where he was for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. So there's a lot packed into this verse that helps set up the understanding of the temptation and the rest of this passage. So let me just mention a couple of things. In verse two, sorry, verse two, go back to that. Um, it says, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So in this passage, it points out the fact that the devil is real, that there is a very real devil. Jesus is tempted, but it says he's tempted by the devil. Now, there are people I know who would say, I don't know if I believe in the devil. And that's okay, but here's the problem. The devil still believes in you. And that's a challenge. It's an interesting thing in our culture that so much of our culture wants to push God out of things. 
in many formal ways. And yet what we can't avoid in our culture is this controlling sense of evil in our world. And every single orientation, every single, uh, every single orientation has to account for the fact that there is a fundamental evil in this world. And we have to account for that because there's too much evil in this world to just say, well, it just, it's just because there's a bad mood out there, right? There's something more fundamental and f- more evil out there that we have to account for. And in some ways, right, this last week proves that point. When we think about what happens in, in Uvalde, Texas, you look at that senseless, violent act And there's no way of looking at that and and saying anything other than that was pure evil. Pure evil. And the Bible says, you know what, there is a fundamental evil, but there's also a person behind that fundamental evil, and that person is is the devil. And so this this passage helps us see that there's a real devil, and Jesus is really being tempted. Then it verse says, says this, he ate nothing during those days for 40 days, And at the end of that time, he was hungry. Again, probably the most obvious verse in the Bible. Just in case we didn't catch the detail that he might be hungry after not having food for that long of time. But it is a helpful detail nonetheless. And the reason why it's helpful is because it helps us understand that Jesus being very hungry means that he was tempted as a man. So Jesus, let me be very clear on this. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus has always been God, but he took on humanity to himself. We call it the incarnation. And so when Jesus was tempted, it wasn't, well, you know, you're God. I mean, come on, you don't need, you know, this isn't a real temptation for you because you're just, you're God. You can handle that kind of stuff. No, he was tempted as a man. He's 100% man, so he's hungry. And this passage helps us understand that the temptation he faced, he faced for real. He, he understands the weight of the temptation. And this is important for us to get to because the temptation we face, Jesus is able to sympathize with it. He understands the challenges that we face, the temptations that we run into, the things that we battle. And we can come to him with confidence because we know that he understands. It's not that he's removed from us and like, I don't even know what you're talking about or why you're feeling that way. Just stop it. No, Jesus has been there. He knows. He's a sympathetic high priest, the Bible says. So he, we is someone we can come to, someone we can look to, someone we can walk with, and he's also someone who had victory over temptation, so we can also have hope of victory in our own lives as we look to him and walk with him. This is the good news, and that's why this is an important detail for us to get. Now, I do want to talk about the three temptations which, comes, which come next in this passage. And before we do that, I thought I would just kind of give an overview of the three temptations of Jesus. And I'm going to describe them in a way that kind of gets behind what's going on, the temptation of, of Jesus, what the enemy's strategy is, what he's trying to do. Um, and by doing that, I, th- oh, I think it could be helpful for you and I as we face our own temptations. The first one is this. We find it in verses 3 and 4. This is the stones to bread temptation. That's a personal, very personal temptation, physical temptation. It's the temptation to question God's care. The temptation to question God's care. And then the second temptation is verses 5 through 8. This is the a world's for worship temptation. It's a power temptation. And that temptation behind that is this doubt God's wisdom and his plan. 
And then the third thing is the jump for glory. That's the jumping off the, the temple. And this is a pride temptation, and it's a challenge, a temptation to challenge God's oversight. Now, I say it in this way because I think it's helpful to see what's behind it. Because each and every one of us, when we face temptation, um, there are core, these core elements are always going to be there. There's going to be an element when we're tempted to question God's care, to doubt his wisdom and his plan, and to challenge his oversight. There's always going to be that underlying temptation. And this is why it's important for us to get, because as we talk about the different challenges that we face over the course of the summer, there's going to be also an element of temptation that comes to us in the moment of challenge. For instance, when you're facing a challenge, there's going to be this element of questioning God's care. God, do you really care about me that I'm facing this circumstance, that I'm going through this trial, that I have this overwhelming situation in my life? Do you really care? Are you really there? God, are you really, you doubt God's wisdom. God, are you really in control of this? Why would you do this? Are you really, is this really your plan? And then to challenge his oversight in the whole thing. There's going to be that temptation as we face the different challenges that we look at over the course of the summer. So again, this is a helpful place to start because we understand the strategy of the enemy and we can see how Jesus then um, dresses it. And so that's what I want to do. Let's look at the first one, which is stones to bread. In verse three, it says this, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. So the enemy comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, you've been in the desert a long time. And you're, you've got to be starving. What? It's been 30 days, you know, and you, each day, 31 days, 32 days. Jesus, you've got to be starving. So why not take some of these stones and turn it into bread? See, they're out in the desert. They're out in the Judean wilderness, and there's stones all around them. And as you look around and you see all these different stones, I'm sure the enemy is that Satan's saying, hey, look at this one. He picks one up. This is about the size of a donut hole. Wouldn't that be tasty right now? Man, that'd be so good. Doesn't that sound awesome? Or, hey, this is, a good, this is about the size of a, a loaf of bread. Man, wouldn't it be great if you just had some bread to eat right now? So there's this temptation to turn the, the stones to bread. And he's saying, listen, Jesus, you can do it. I know you can. Obviously, God's given up on you. He doesn't care. You're out here with no food. So stop depending on him. Do it yourself. You can do it. Say the words, and that stone can become bread. And guess what? I've got a great, I've got a great um, marketing plan. We can call it Wonder Bread, right? So it's going to be so good. <laughs> I had to say it. Sorry. But he say, listen, you could, you could turn this stone into bread. This, and just, you know, God's obviously doesn't care about you. Go for it. And so this is what the temptation is. And can you hear that temptation in your own heart, in your own mind as well? Can you hear the enemy saying at different points at different times, God doesn't care about you. He's given up on you. Oh, maybe God's holding out on me. See, this thing that, you know, everybody has, I want that. Well, God doesn't care about me. I don't get it. And, and so we have this temptation that's there and it's underlining to question God's care that he must be holding out. These are good things that everyone else has, but not me. And so we got to take it ourselves. Stop depending on him. Now, what we find is that Jesus, he resists this temptation. And after Jesus resists all the temptations, by the way, he leaves the wilderness and he goes back up to, he goes north to Galilee. And right after this temptation, right after the the Judean desert temptation, he goes to this, uh, the, the area of the region of Galilee and he goes to a place called Cana, and it's there that he performs his very first miracle. Do you know what that miracle is? 
He turned water into wine. He was just in the desert, and he did not turn stones into bread. Then he immediately goes up to Galilee, and he turns water into wine. And he does it, of course, not for himself. He does it for the, the guests that are at this wedding that he goes to. And he does it for the host to honor, to honor the host. But why? the question is, why does he do it? Why does he turn water into wine? Because his mom asked him to. <laughs> That's why. His mom asked him to. So maybe here's the whole point of the whole thing, okay? Here's the whole point of the whole thing. When, uh, when your mom says... This is the point. Say yes to your mama and no to the devil. Maybe that's the whole point of this whole thing. And I know we laugh at that a little bit. Let me ask you this question, though. How many of you would be better off if you had said yes to mama and no to the devil? There's some of you who are like, honest, I'll, I'll raise my hand. Okay, good. Some honest people in this room. Now, again, I'm just having some fun here, but what is, the real, what is the real point? The real point that I want you to see is how Jesus responds to the temptation. And this is what he says in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So who is it that Jesus is listening to? He's listening to his heavenly father. He's looking to God's word to guide him in the midst of the temptation. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 8 he's referring back to. And it brings us back to the Israelites who are wandering through the desert. And um, God was providing food for them. God was providing food for them. And what he wanted to teach them over and over is depend on me. Depend on me. Depend on me. Don't stop depending on me. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not going to stop either. I'm not going to stop depending upon God, not just for food, but for everything. And so I'm not going to question his care. I know he cares, and I'm going to depend on him. That's what Jesus does. And he models for us dependence upon God and trust in God's care, but he also shows us a method in which of confronting temptation. And the method that Jesus uses is God's word. He does look to scripture to help him uh, address the, the enemy, the temptation, and resist the devil. And so that's what Jesus does. The question I have for you is, do you? What do you do when you're faced with temptation? I think many people, when they face temptation, they just hope that they can just weather the storm, that they'll be able to get on by, and somehow it'll all be okay when you get to the other end. But Jesus says, hey, no, there's a different way. You come at it with God's truth, and you resist the temptation based on God's word. So the question is, what do you do? What do you do when you face temptation? Jesus is a model, and he shows us a great method in confronting the temptation, using his word to resist the devil. Now, look at the next one. The next one is this. Verse 5 says this, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Next verse. And he said to him, I will give you all the, their authority and splendor that has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So uh, Satan takes Jesus to this place where he can see in a, in a moment all the, the, the nations of the world. And he says, hey, I'll give it all to you because I have that authority. I'll give it all to you. The question you may have is, does Satan really have that kind of authority in this world? Now, the Bible talks about Satan. He says he's the prince of the air, that he's the, he's the prince of this earth. So, yeah. He has real and substantial authority. And anyone who thinks other than that is a fool. But at the same time, listen close. He is called a prince. He's not the king. Right? There is a king who stands above it all, 
who the devil has to, uh, who has to respond to. Now, Martin Luther famously said about the devil, he, he says, yes, there is a devil, but he's God's devil. That is, God's still in charge. That's the, the important thing that we get, that we see here. And so um, he says, hey, but I'll give it all to you. Then he gives the deal. Verse 7, he says this, if you worship me, all this that you're looking at, all the nations, all the world, it will be yours. Now, the word worship is important. It's, it's in the aorist tense, which basically the enemy, Satan is coming to Jesus and saying, worship me just for a moment, just a second, worship me, and it'll all be yours. Just a minute worship, just, just this one time, worship me, and I'll give you all this stuff. That's what he's saying. And isn't that still part of the strategy of the enemy today? Where he says, hey, just, just a moment. Just this one time. Just this little bite. Just this little taste. Just, try, just this one moment. One second. You've, been, you've, been, you've, been got, you've got a lot going on. So just visit this website just one time. You have a lot going on in your life. It's a hard day at work. And you know, I know that you don't want to drink anymore. But you know what? It's just one night. Just one time. One moment. I know that you've said that's not a person that's a healthy person for you to date. They're going in a complete different direction than you, but come on. I mean, just one date, right? I know you've said, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I really want to try to, uh, you know, remain faithful in, 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 my, in my singleness, but you know what? They asked me to spend the night, and what if I did just this one time? I mean, I deserve it, right? I, I, I'm, I've been alone, right? Just this one time. Do you hear the subtle statements from the enemy? Just one time. See, the enemy has this really great strategy. Just one time. And then he delivers and ever after. After that. Does that make sense? This is the, this is the, the subtle strategy of the enemy. Jesus doesn't buy it. He's saying, listen, no, I'm not going to. Look at the next verse. It says this. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I find this response interesting because the enemy says, worship me. And Jesus says, I'm not going to worship or serve you. And I think this is important because it helps us understand what we worship, we serve. What we worship, we end up serving. And so Jesus is like, nope, I'm not going to do it. And you feel in this temptation of Jesus, what, what the enemy is saying is, listen, Jesus, I know that the world is going to be yours someday. God's promised that. I know that you're, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the one. You're the you're son of God. You're going to get the, the, the nations. But the way that God has it set up in his wisdom, in his plan, you have to go to a cross to get it. And that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. That sounds painful. So I'll give you the world by just bowing to me. Let's shortcut the whole thing. You'll get it all. But you don't have to go that hard path. Do you feel that temptation there? I think there's a temptation for all of us when we come to God in his wisdom to say, I'm going to shortcut it. God, that's what you want, and that's actually what I want. But you know what? I don't want to wait. It seems too hard. It seems too difficult, so I'm going to shortcut your plan. And we take it in to ourselves, and we end up making a mess of it. And that's what Jesus is resisting. Yes, he's, it's all going to be his, but he recognizes, you know what? I'm not going to gain power by taking it. I'm going to receive power by offering my life 
by giving myself away. That's what he does. That's what he holds to. This is what he's saying. Then the next temptation. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. Next verse. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Next verse. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So now Satan takes Jesus up to the highest point of the temple. This is 450 feet above the, the Kidron Valley. And it's, it's this high spot. It's an ancient skyscraper you know, kind of position. And he takes Jesus there and he says, go ahead and throw yourself off. Because guess what? Jesus, you're a Bible guy. Guess what? I'm going to quote some Bible. And he quotes Psalm 91. He says, God will take care of you. He's not going to let you fall. And what a spectacular way to begin your ministry. Jump off, hit the ground, and then walk away without a scratch. I mean, talk about publicity. I mean, people will be like, whoa, you must be God or something. You must be, you're so great. Do something sensational, Jesus. We'll get you on track. It'll be so good. So he's saying, test God, challenge God, manipulate God. And I actually think this is a temptation that we can find ourselves in where we can say, okay, I'm going uh, to kind of push God. God's there for my manipulation, for, to, 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 for, for my desires. And so listen to what Jesus says in response. He says this. Jesus answered and said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, there's, there's a, a false way of thinking, of thinking that we can challenge God's oversight. We can, we can tell God what to do. And maybe that's why many of you have struggled in church or have left the church and are uncertain about coming back to church. There's this concept of, you know, just believe it and you'll receive it, that I can just tell God what I want, twist his arm, and I'll get my way. And Jesus steps back and says, no, no, no. It's not my, our spot, not my space to test God, to, to manipulate him, to challenge his oversight and his authority. He doesn't serve me, I serve him. That's what Jesus is saying. And in so doing with this response, Jesus is actually teaching us the greatest uh, principle for scriptural interpretation. The greatest principle for scripture interpretation is this. Interpret scripture with scripture. Interpret scripture with other scripture. When you run into something, a, a portion of scripture that isn't well illumined, you're struggling to understand what it means. Jesus models for us to take other scripture that's very clear, that shines bright, and use that light to shine on the passages that aren't clear, and it helps bring things into focus. And so Jesus does just that. He takes this passage and he says, let me shine it on the, the Bible that you're quoting, devil, because devil changed the strategy. He's like, okay, Jesus, you're using word, the word of God, I'm going to use it too. But what's interesting is not only does he quote um, scripture, and he can do that, by the way, he'll misquote it. And that's what we, we, we need to recognize. And you can go back and look at Psalm 91. There's four words that are missing in this quotation that the enemy, uh, you know, subtly takes out. And that's what, that's what goes on. But Jesus says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring clarity to it by using other scripture to interpret this passage. And it's important for us to see. Jesus is saying, listen, um, I'm not here uh, to tell God what to do. I'm here to do the will of God. I'm not here to say, God, you serve me. But it's, God, how can I serve you? And that's the whole point. And that's why he resists all of these temptations, by the way. Remember his mission? His mission was to be the sacrificial lamb of God for the sins of the world. He knew he had to go to a cross. And he wasn't going to shortcut it. 
And you know what hung in the balance in this temptation? What hung in the balance if Jesus had given in to these temptations? What hung in the balance is you and me. We hung in the balance of Jesus, you know, shortcutting things and not going to the cross. Guess what that would have that meant for you and I? We never would have received the opportunity to express faith in Christ and received his forgiveness. In Mark chapter um, 10, it says this in verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who's the many in this passage? It's us. We're the many. He gave his life for us. He didn't shortcut God's plan. He didn't take things to himself. He didn't elevate his status of power to elevate his pride, he says, no, 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 I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to go to the cross, endure the pain, endure the shame, endure the hardship, ex- experience the, the, the death of, for sin that he doesn't deserve, but he did it for us so that we can find forgiveness and freedom. This is what he did for us on the cross. It's incredible. Then the last verse that I want you to see is this. Verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. I hate this verse. It would be so nice if it had said, after he tried tempting Jesus and it didn't work, he left for good. But it doesn't work that way, does it? And it doesn't work that way for you and I. That The enemy will continually want to attack. Therefore, all the more reason for us to say, God, I want to walk with you. It's not just a one-time victory, one-time challenge, a one-time trust you, walk with you, but I continue to walk with Jesus because I need to depend on his strength and his power and not my own. Jesus was tempted again. We know that because he was tempted in Gethsemane. He was tempted at Golgotha, but he resisted, he resisted, and he went to the cross for you and me. And you know why? Again, for our salvation. We shouldn't ever come to a spot where we question God's care for us when we look at the cross. When we look at the cross, we recognize, oh no, God cares. He cares so much for you and I that we have the opportunity to find forgiveness and life that he sent his son to die in our place so that we could have life. We could have freedom. We can have hope of eternal life with him. That's how much he cares about you. That's how much he cares about me. And in God's wisdom, it's so different from the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom is, hey, I'm going to take power to myself. I'll demand it, demand my rights, and, and tell people what, I want to, what, you know, what, what they need to do. And Jesus instead says, no, no, I'm not going to demand my rights. I'm going to surrender my rights and offer myself. He humbled himself, became a man, became a servant. It's so different from the wisdom of this world but we can't doubt God's wisdom because it was for our good that Jesus died on the cross. God's oversight is clear. We don't twist his arm. We say, God, we want to be used by you. And as we surrender ourselves, we serve him, he can do something significant through us. That's the whole idea. And that's what Jesus modeled for us. It's the method, but it's remembering all that he has done for us because of his care. So let me take a moment right now and let's just pause and come before God in, in his presence and prayer. 
and, uh, and just thank him for what he's done for us. Let's take a moment and pray. Go ahead and bow your heads. And right now in this moment, this is an opportunity for you to come before the Lord and to maybe express thanks to him for what he has done for you, for expressing his care in your life through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're in a spot where you have yet to place your faith in Christ, you've been, you recognize that you're trying to handle challenges and face temptations in your own power, and your own strength, now could be a moment for you to say, God, I'm tired. I can't. I'm stuck. And I need your help. When you think about the struggles you have, it's okay to say, God, I'm powerless in this area. He already knows it. You know it. But it takes courage and strength and wisdom to say, I can't do it anymore. God, I need your power to help me get unstuck. So just ask him. Lord, help me in this temptation area. Help me in this real challenge to trust you. Experience your power. Help me to move forward as I walk with you. God, we do thank you together for your your love for us, your care for us, demonstrated through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you also for Christ's model and example and the recognition that we can come to Jesus knowing that he understands our struggles, understands our heart, the battle that we face, the failures that we have, and we can come to him with confidence knowing that he is there to love us, care for us, that we have the great resource of your word and your spirit, and we have Jesus who's interceding for us. We thank you, God, for all of these resources, for your care, your wisdom, and your oversight in your name. Amen.